The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us in today's teleconference where we will discuss issues regarding employing F1 students who are either on the curricular practical training or the optional practical training and how to transition them to H1B status. Um, I'm honored to introduce to you two of my esteemed colleagues from the Murthy Law Firm, senior attorney and member of the firms, Anna Stepanova, who, as many of you will recollect, has been an international student advisor slash designated school official or DSO with a major university out in the Midwest, and another of our brilliant and amazing colleagues at the Murthy Law Firm, TJ Sachet, um, who will discuss today's topics. As usual, I, Sheila Murthy, will act as the moderator primarily uh, to uh, have a nice, lively discussion and share some information with you. So as I said, we are going to talk about H1s, CPT, OPT. For you all who are on the conference call, this information will be helpful so that you get a sense of how to use uh, CPT and OPT students and how we can transition them to the H-1B status and possibly compliance with uh, with the I-9 regulations. Also, we'll talk about the work authorization for students, which can be pretty complex. And um, besides the F-1 issues dealing with CPT and OPT will touch upon the cap gap issues and how filing the H-1 petition and the timing of the filing can be critical with all of this. So with that broad introduction and overview, let me get jump to TJ to say, TJ, what exactly is the CPT or curricular practical training? Sure. Thanks, Sheila. So CPT is, is for students who are still in school pursuing their full course of study. One of the core requirements for CPT is that the training must be an integral part of the established curriculum. Generally, the the training meets this requirement if the student registers it for academic credit or it's required by the actual program of study. Uh, TJ, that's very good information. And um, also what's very important is that there should be an agreement between the school and the employer, which is termed by the regulations as the cooperative agreement. So our clients are very often asking about uh, the co-op agreement, cooperative agreement, and whether or not uh, that must be in place. Uh, The regulations require a co-op agreement, so it's uh, probably better and it's recommended to have one in place um, anyway, so in addition to the co-op agreement between the school and the employer, the student needs to be enrolled full-time for a full academic year before becoming eligible for training. Uh, some schools will um, authorize CPT from day one. That may or may not be proper, so uh, students must be aware of this rule. Are there any exceptions to the requirement to be enrolled for a minimum of one full year? Yeah, so there, there actually are some exceptions to that. The, the first is if the program of study actually requires hands-on practical training 
during the first year of CPT authorization. Um, there are very few programs that actually do this, but some types of programs do, like MBA programs or engineering programs. Certain very limited engineering programs. In, in addition to that, also, if a student uh, completed one program and then uh, uh, possibly did a year of OPT or three years of OPT if they're eligible for STEM OPT extension, and then they go back to school. So there was no interruption between the two programs. The time accumulated during the previous program can still count towards meeting the one-year requirement. So if somebody is uh, moving back to school, they're going back to school after a period of OPT, for example, can uh, presumably start CPT in their first term because uh, they've already been a student for a Do year or more. Does it have to be in the same university? No, it does not <laughs> have to be in the same university. All that counts is that the student has been uh, in F1 status for at least a year prior to joining the new program. Well, that's excellent. So when people, because I know a lot of employers and companies, once they've gotten somebody or used to somebody on the OPT and then the OPT expires and they may not get selected for the H-1B lottery, then the op option of the CPT from day one by joining a new program is certainly extremely attractive. Very common scenario, that's right. Also, we see that the CPT authorization actually does not require any kind of USCIS approval, and it's issued by the designated uh, school official or the DSO or the, what we call the International Student Advisor on a form I-20. So they issue a new I-20, student joins, and then the rest is history. So let's go to the next. What are the most common problems that we see with CPT, TJ? Sure. So one, one of the, the main problems we see is that USC is, re is requiring evidence of what Anna talked about, the co-op agreement. And then another thing is, is the CPT actually integral to the program of study? Um, and the, the, um, the employer must make sure that the major program of study is directly related to the field of employment. Uh, an example of a problem with CPT authorization is when the student's pursuing, let's say, an MBA program with a concentration in IT. Um, and they're performing IT-type jobs. And this is something that is not considered integral to the program of study because USCIS doesn't consider um, you know, minors or concentrations as part of the program of study. And that's a very good point, TJ, because the very common scenario includes someone who is on OPT and the employer files an H-1B petition. For some reason, the H-1B petition doesn't get picked in the lottery or denied, and the person, the employee, joins a new program of study. They continue working in the same job while pursuing a different course of study. So that could be considered by USCIS as not integral and, and uh, to the new program of study and therefore not properly authorized. So you, you, they have to be aware of this kind of problem. Yeah, certainly. And we and we and you see that that could come up during the next cap season when you file another petition. USCIS could, could currently question whether the CPT was properly authorized and it was whether it was integral to the program of study. Uh, another thing that you need to t keep aware of is that the student must maintain full-time enrollment in school while on CPT. And it's not just a mechanism for, for work authorization and school being secondary. School should actually be primary. And, and one thing that you see frequently, and USCIS does question this, is when the individual goes to school in one state 
but is working in another state. So USCIS questions how they can actually maintain full-time enrollment in that situation. Always, uh, students always need to check with their DSOs because schools also establish their own rules about what constitutes full-time study. So sometimes uh, full-time CPT would also be considered to be an equivalent to full-time study, sometimes not. So you have to check with the school. Thank you both. That's a fantastic uh, discussion of uh, the, the issue on CPTs, which I think employers routinely tend to use when they're desperate and the person hasn't been picked in the lottery. So the next, of course, is the more common, the OPT after completion of the education. So Anna, can I have you start? Absolutely. So optional practical training, OPT, unlike CPT, does require authorization from USCIS. So this gives USCIS a chance to go through the entire immigration history of the applicant. So because they will be the one uh, who will issue the approval, unlike CPT, where only DSO's approval is sufficient. Uh, OPT could be authorized prior to and after the completion of study, and they're called pre-completion, post-completion OPT. A pre-completion OPT is not very commonly used, but it's something that, in my opinion, is underutilized because that is something that may be available to students before they complete their program if they otherwise uh, do not qualify for CPT, for example. So OPT can, uh, pre-completion OPT can be authorized for a maximum of 20 hours per week when the school is in session, and it could be up to full time during the regular breaks, such as a summer break. Okay. And uh, like CPT, it has to be directly related to the student's program of study and is subject to the same requirement as we just discussed with regard to CPT. The student has to be enrolled for a full academic year of full-time st uh, study before they can uh, be authorized for OPT. Okay. Uh, that, uh, that makes sense. And what about, TJ, the... Uh when can they start employment? Sure. So I, th I think it's important to remember that unlike different types of, you know, immigration filings, that when you file for the OPT EAD, you are not permitted to work upon the filing. You have to wait for the actual approval. Um, but the good thing <laughs> is that, that the 90-day unemployment limit on OPT doesn't start until the EAD card is issued. Yeah, otherwise that would be a violation of employment uh, rules. That's, that's right. So, and also... Per uh, student and exchange visa to program, this is part of Immigration Customs Enforcement that is in charge of CVIS, the tracking system of um, for F1 students and J1 visitors. So per SEVP or student exchange visa program, one of the permissible types of OPT employment is an unpaid internship of volunteering. Um, however, you could only do unpaid uh, employment during the first year, not during the STEM OPT extension. And you should also be aware that unpaid employment in this case should not violate labor laws to satisfy the OPT requirement. In other words, if the position that is unpaid normally requires to be a paid job, then it will probably be a violation of lab labor laws not to provide the uh, wages to that worker in this, in this job. Okay. So now let's go on to the issue of discuss briefly the issue of the OPT STEM extension. As most of you are aware, students who have graduated uh, either in science, technology, engineering, or math, the STEM subjects, could be eligible for 
up to 24 months extension of the OPT after the first full 12 months, so now you're talking three full years total, the STEM OPT employer must design and implement a formal training program on Form I-983. All these are fairly recent. So for the first year, you don't have as many restrictions. It's year two and three or rather during the STEM extension that all of these additional requirements are uh, have now been added on in the last few years. Your student is given two lifetime STEM extensions. The STEM is based generally on the, can be based on a previous degree. So an F1 student may use a prior STEM degree from a U.S. institution to apply for the STEM extension, even if the most recent degree is not in a STEM OPT eligible degree, those certain exceptions apply. Uh, and, and I can have one. Yeah, and, and that mm-hmm. is a good point, uh, which is provides more flexibility to students, but unfortunately is not very commonly used. In terms of a more uh, stringent requirements uh, on STEM uh, OPT as opposed to regular OPT, the types of eligible employment are more restrictive. You cannot be self-employed while uh, during the first year OPT you can be. Also, the employer is subject to uh, specific wage requirements. So the employer must agree to provide compensation commensurate with similarly employed individuals. And normally what that means is that if the employer has at least three other trainee workers in the same or similar positions, they have to be paid the same wage. And the employer has to be able to provide an explanation how they arrived at that um, wage level. Uh, the reporting requirements. There are also there are more reporting requirements now than before the new STEM OPT rule went into effect, and they apply to both the employer and the F1 student. The student must submit the STEM OPT extension request on Form I-765, while uh, the first year OPT is still valid. So, USC- if USCIS receives the STEM OPT extension application even one day late, uh, the application is going to be denied, which is unfortunate, but it's a very bright um, rule. So a bright line rule, you uh, cannot, uh, USCIS cannot use their discretion. We have a lot of um, people calling with this problem when they get a denial, and they're just a little bit late, but that's that's it. That's um uh, that is the end of their STEM OPT claim. Uh, what's uh, good is that unlike so preferably they should apply then three months before. Oh yeah, absolutely, than days absolutely. So you should always <clears throat> apply as soon as possible because if you don't and something happens like the uh, uh, filing fee check is incorrect, that could be rejected. But sometimes it's rejected a few weeks later, so you kind of you miss the you miss the deadline. You well, miss the deadline. Can you apply deadline. six months before? Uh, three uh, ninety days prior. So uh, you can you have 90 days to apply for uh, a STEM extension. What's also good is that you have 180 days of employment authorization with F1 extension while your STEM extension is pending. So if it's still pending, no problem. You don't have to have an approval as, uh, as long as it's timely filed and properly filed before the expiration of the first year OPT. So you also have uh, an an additional 60 day of unemployment period uh, as opposed to 
what uh, we used to have only 30 days. So now it's 90 plus 60, 150 days for a three-year period of the first year OPT plus two years of the STEM extension. Um, also, what um, I, I think would be of a lot of interest to uh, students who are on STEM OPT um, is that travel uh, when they have a pending STEM OPT during uh, cap gap is uh, uh, is authorized. I would also caution people against travel until uh, and unless they have an actual EAD card, because not a lot of govern government officials are aware of this rule. Okay. So, and also. You know, you can apply for STEM extension during the cap gap, and uh, this can be fairly complicated because, again, last year we saw a lot of denials, incorrect denials by USCIS when they said that you missed the opportunity to file your STEM extension, not realizing that it was filed during the cap gap extension of the first year of OPT. So you're saying that they were supposed to apply within 90 days before their F1 expired. Right. That's the general rule. But if you are on cap gap, and I guess we're, we're going to um, talk about it a little bit later, if you are, if your first year of OPT has been extended via cap gap benefit, uh, then your EAD could have expired earlier, but you are still eligible to file for the STEM extension if, even after the expiration of your first year EAD if you are now uh, in your cap gap extension period. Okay, so meaning the USCIS hasn't yet rejected your petition, you're sort of in this gray area? Correct. correct. So you, now you're enjoying yeah. cap gap and you could then go and apply? For the STEM extension. For the STEM if you're eligible Unfortunately, for Unfortunately, USCIS doesn't recognize the rule. This is um, this was first introduced by the uh, new STEM OPT rule, and sometimes they deny these cases of STEM OPT applications uh, filed during the cap gap extension incorrectly, and it's fairly difficult to reopen those cases and get them approved. But going to federal court presumably will it kick their butts. Possibly, bots. possibly. Okay, time to sue the government again. It's always good. Don't ever be afraid. That's my mantra, as you know. Um, okay, so next we want to transfer to, oh, and then the last issue was, I think, about re the employer having to terminate, uh, notify or report terminations or resignations within a five-day period because previously it was two days, so Only they've given you a days. couple. But it's still very tight. So if uh, you as an employer is traveling uh, somewhere out of the country or the world, you're not checking your emails or your messages or your mail, you need to have someone in your company checking all that stuff because they're very tight time deadlines to comply with government uh, reporting requirements like an employee leaving you, terminating, resigning. If you're not even aware of it, it's not an excuse under the law. So next we try to jump to the important issue for all of you about the H-1B cap gap. I know we're uh, in, you know, right before filing cap season, filing fresh cap cases. As most of you know, what is a cap cap? I think all of you know, otherwise you wouldn't be on this call, but maybe there's a couple that don't know. You have a cap maximum number of 65,000 H-1Bs that were allowed in each fiscal year. The, remember, this this number literally was came out of a hat back in 1990 when there were not even 20 or 30,000 H-1s being used each year. So everyone thought 65,000 will definitely last for eternity, easily for the full 365 days. 
Uh, alas, internet came, technology came, the world changed, but the 65,000 number did not change except that thanks to the u- universities lobbying hard, they added the, the additional 20,000 extra slots for individuals who complete a U.S. master's degree from specific certain specific kinds of schools. It can't be a for-profit, must be a public university, not a for-profit private university, all kinds of ridiculous stuff that they keep clamping down on, and they themselves approve the case and then penalize employees later on. So with that uh, introduction, let me jump to you, TJ, to say, so who exactly would then be subject uh, to the cap? Because if I'm an employer, now I'm ready to file, how do I know if my employees subject are exempt? Sure, sure. So, so the first thing we, we really look at is we want to see if the individual has ever received an H-1B approval before. And and not just the approval, we want to see that they were either, either given the H-1B status, and that's with the I-94 card attached, or they were issued an H-1B visa at the consulate abroad. Um, and if so, then they were generally counted against the cap. As long as it was with a cap subject employer, not a university or a higher education, it has to be. Exactly, exactly. Um, and so the next thing, good segue, the next thing we also look at is if the employer is a, is a cap-exempt um, mm. employer. Um, some employment, you know, some certain employers are exempt from the cap, and this includes employment at or for universities and their nonprofit affiliates, as well as um, nonprofit and governmental research organizations. And then there are also um, physicians who have received a, a waiver of the J-2 home residency requirement, um, who are through the comrade waiver of the J-2 home residency requirement, are also exempt from the cap. Okay. I know, Anna, you kept referring to the term cap, gap, cap, gap. So for employers who are not sure what that means. Yeah, we have pre- not introduced it yet. Um, so cap, gap, what is really great about cap, gap is that you don't have to apply for it. The law allows you to benefit from um, and th- this rule. Uh, this is a benefit to a lot of uh, students in F1 status, but you do not have to apply for it, contrary to what most people think um, when they ask about cap gap. So this is an automatic period of an extension of what F1 status for students who are transitioning to H1B status in some situations. It exists when there is a gap between the time the student's F1 status expires and the uh, permitted start date for the H1B status, which has to be on requested as of October 1st, which is the um, beginning of the fiscal year each, each year. Without cap gap relief, of course, many students would be faced with the prospect of either having to leave the U.S. between the end of their F1 status uh, and the beginning of their H-1B or finding other way to bridge the gap. And that used to be the rule until, I believe, 2010, when the new rule went, um, cap-gap rule went into effect, which uh, benefits a lot of students when, uh, yeah, for example, they, yeah, for example, they, um, have their first year of OPT ending sometime after, uh, the first week of April when the, uh, uh, petition, the H-1B petition is filed, and then without the cap gap, they would have to stop working and probably leave the U.S., but now they have this opportunity to continue working through uh, September 30th with some exceptions. Yeah, it makes a world of difference. I remember those days yes. where people would be constantly in panic about what to do. So specifically, what do the cap gap provisions provide? It provides that status and work authorization is automatically extended for the F-1 students who comply with certain uh, criteria. One, it must be timely filed. 
uh, H-1B case with a request for a change of status within the United States. It cannot be for those who process consular notification cases or what we call consular processing. It must always have an October 1st start date of employment, which is sometimes crazy because technically, even though that's what the rule says, what if October 1st is a Sunday? Can they do October 2nd? But according to the rule, it says October 1st start date. So it's ridiculous, but that's the rule. Uh, and... Uh, so and another requirement is also that the, the student must have maintained um, their F-1 status, must not have otherwise violated their status. And, and if you meet these requirements, then your status and work authorization for students who are on OPT is automatically extended until September 30th or until the H-1B, cap is, H-1B case is rejected, denied, or revoked, whichever is earlier. And it's important to note that this also includes those cases that were rejected in the lottery. So if you find out in July that you're rejected from the lottery, then your cap gap ends. So a person who, say, let's say, has valid F1 OPT uh, EAD uh, with OPT till end of May, and they only the rejection comes in in June or July, which usually is when it comes in, they can keep working till June, July. But now they've used up their June and July 60-day grace period when by the time they find out, let's say, in June or July. Now what? Well, SFAP uh, put together a very helpful chart, I believe, a few years ago, and they did not renew it, but I think we just go by the same rules that they put in place. What they said previously was that if you file a timely petition, which subjects what would normally would subject the person uh, to the cap gap or would provide the cap gap benefit, then the work authorization should be extended until June 2nd, and then you have 60 days after June 2nd to remain in the U.S. in um, the grace period if the H-1B petition gets rejected. Oh, so they're giving you the 60 days of grace period from the day of the rejection. Or June 2nd. So that's kind of, as I said, you know, this the, the rule hasn't been updated uh, since a few years ago, and what uh, the, the June 2nd date, I believe, is based on their expectation that uh, the rejected cases would already be sent back to the employers by that date, but as we know, that doesn't always happen. So, so as you can see, this is such a complex and crazy issue with ever-changing rules, unwritten rules, rules that are written but not renewed, uh, so nobody knows for sure how this works, which is why you need somebody like Anna, and we rely on Anna internally also at the Murti Law Firm because it's such a ridiculously complex and ever-changing uh, target, if you will. So talking about you, Anna, can you share, you know, clarify what type of events or situations would affect the maximum period of the CapCap extension? Uh, sure, absolutely. So as I said, SVP, that's in charge of the student tracking program, uh, CVIS, uh, provided uh, some specific dates of termination of F1 status conditioned upon specific events during the cap gap. So this could be used as a point of reference, but as you just um, said, uh, it's a very nuanced area. Um, and uh, somebody who's trying to determine if they're able for benefit uh, 
they, they need to speak with us uh, because we would probably look at their individual circumstances with the trends, with the policy at that point. So this is obviously just kind of a, a general overview that um, does not replace a specific legal advice that uh, you may need uh, at some point in the, f in the future. So for example, going back to the specific events. For example, if the petition is properly filed, this alone extends the student OPT period until sometime in the future. Uh, should the petition not be selected for receding, then the student status would terminate on the last date of receding unless the student had remaining time in his or her OPT card. And if the petition is selected in the lottery, then the status would generally be extended until September 30th of any given fiscal year. However, if the petition is withdrawn or denied prior to September 30th, the OPT authorization ends 10 days after the date of the withdrawal or denial, and the student would then have a 60-day grace period after the date of denial. And it's important to note, though, that if the, the denial comes with a, a finding that the individual violated their status, then they would not get these additional grace periods. Um, and it's not entirely clear what the student is entitled to if the petition is withdrawn or denied after September 30th. We've seen different government agencies express different opinions in regards to this situation and what, whether the, the student has the grace period or not. Sure. I guess the only way it's really, really sure is if the per-student status F1 OPT did not expire let's say, till October or November or December, then obviously that's the only safe way. Otherwise, the cap-gap situation seems to be where all of this gray area and unanswered questions, obviously, because that's when you need cap-gap. Before that, there's technically no cap-gap. So the next issue that we want to briefly touch upon is how will the students and the employer know that they have gotten cap-gap or that they can enjoy the benefits of the cap-gap extension? Is there any kind of a specific request that needs to be made well, actually, um, as long as we comply with the terms and conditions as explained before, that the H-1B petition was timely filed, requesting the change of status within October 1st start date, then um, that sh should, at least on the face of it, start the process, give some peace of mind. Uh, but until the receipt notice is issued by the USCIS, then only then does the employer slash petitioner know for sure that it was properly filed within that time frame. And after the USCIS issues the receipt notice, uh, the information then will be updated in their system and in the student's service record. Service is the student and exchange visitor information system for the student database. However, there have been examples where the data actually does not end up getting transferred properly. No big surprise, we're dealing with government and bureaucracy. And then students are then have responsible for checking with their student, international student advisor or DSO, and verifying that their CVS record has been updated with the extension. Then the DSO, if it's not done, has to contact the ICE person and the SEVP person and ask them to make that change. And there's a lot of negotiation that happens behind. Uh, also, the students will not be personally notified of any kind of a withdrawal or of a denial of the H-1B petition because they're considered simply beneficiaries and not the actual petitioning employer, like you all as employers would be given that notification. 
So it is very important for the student to remain in contact with the petitioner or the employer and with the DSO. And I think it's helpful for you all as employers on this conference call to notify the employee if the petition has not been selected or withdrawn so that they can go run and try to get admission into another school within that short window of time that is given to them by law. The next issue that we want to touch upon, and Anna, I'll ask you if you don't mind, is should the student obtain any new I-20 form from the school to reflect the fact that the student is in the period of CAP-CAP extension? As we discussed, the CAP-CAP uh, benefit is an automatic benefit, but some schools routinely issue new I-20s reflecting the cap gap. And in some cases where the CVIS system does not reflect the proper filing of the H-1B petition, then the student should go to the DSO and uh, provide the receipt notice so that the DSO could update the CVIS system with the proper information and, and issue that I-20. That should be sufficient for employment and I-9 purposes. So you, as an employer, uh, should uh, be um, able to update your I-9 with the uh, properly issued uh, I-20 reflecting the cap gap benefit. So then, the, the, as an employer, the employer needs to tell the employee, go to the student that's DSO a very, and that's get a, that's this I-20. Yes, yes. That's, okay, that's I, I'm idea. sure many people don't know it or don't, certainly don't use it. The next question that I have, maybe TJ, I can come to you for this sure. one, is can a student who is a beneficiary of an H-1 petition filed with the change of status benefit from an automatic extension if the petition is filed during the grace period after the completion of the OPT employment authorization? And if so, would the student be able to continue employment or will it just extend the grace period until the October 1st employment start date? Sure, so the, the, the student in this situation would be able to in, in extend their F1 status, but if their OPT was not valid at the time of the H-1B filing, then they wouldn't, their work authorization wouldn't extend, just their F1 status. Okay. And the next issue that uh, we have is the, well, after the H-1B petition has been approved with the change of status, can the student then try to argue that they want to continue to stay in the F-1 OPT status and use the remaining time on the OPT? No. Once uh, your H-1B petition is approved for change of status as of October 1st, you are on H-1B and you must start H-1B employment. So uh, there are some things that you can do before October 1st, but not after October 1st. You are in H-1B status, and if you don't start H-1B employment pursuant to the terms and conditions of the approved petition, you are in violation of your status. That's only assuming that we get the October 1st start date. If it's approved right. in November or December or whatever, in, because often we are seeing that within they don't actually make a decision in the first six months. Then it changes then you your status. Then it, it changes it as of whatever day they approve of, it with yes. December or November, but till then you can use the OPT oh, yeah, if you absolutely. still have it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. And, and if, the, if the petition isn't approved before October 2nd, 1st, I'm sorry, and the, the student wants to remain in F1 status, they should immediately have their employer withdraw the petition, and then they should go to their DSO and request a data fix from the SEVP help desk, uh, because once the petition is approved and it's past the October 1st start date, as we talked about, the, the data fix is no longer possible.
Okay, so in this example where if the uh, uh, student rushes and tells the employer, uh, the DSO to do the data fix and notifies the employer to withdraw the petition, would the person be, have been counted against the H-1B quota or cap so next year or the year after they could be technically um, safe? I, I would say no because they never entered into the H-1B status. Yeah, presumably under the black letter law, they should not be considered to be counted against the cap. Um, but, of course, this is a little bit of a gray area, and as a lot of other things <laughs> in immigration Yeah, law. that's the problem, is it's a little bit gray area, but it's safer, so it's maybe better for the student not to try to save the remaining time on the F1, especially in this day and age with the current administration, with the number of RFEs and denials. If you're fortunate and blessed enough to get it, even if it means losing a year or two of your OPT time, it might be wise to just hold on and hang on and use that H1B, even though it's restrictive from the student's point of view compared to an OPT that gives slightly greater leverage in terms of working with other employers, but really with the STEM extension with the Form I-983 and training program and restrictions and the co-op agreement, it's all becoming far more complex than in prior years when you didn't have all those restrictions. So I know we're always sensitive to time-related issues and trying to keep this between 30 and 45 minutes for you in the middle of the day. But as you can see, issues dealing with students with CPT, OPT, transition to H-1B issues are in fact extremely complex in a state of flux, constantly changing. And especially in the current political climate, um, the government, the Department of Homeland Security and USCIS are almost using any excuse, any flimsy excuse in most cases, to try to issue RFEs or issue denials for strong, good, legitimate cases, let alone gray areas or areas in which there's no clear-cut guidance either in the statute or the slash the law or even the regulations. Obviously, since many of these students and recent graduates are foreign nationals, the employers need to be particularly aware of their status issues and not, you know, incurring additional complications. And as all of you know, on this conference call, the federal government, whether it's FDNS or ICE, is continuing to conduct more investigations of employers, of H-1B workers, L-1 workers, of universities and schools. And uh, violations of the law can carry not just civil penalties and monetary penalties, uh, but disbarment and even criminal penalties, which is all done to scare the living daylight out of companies, employers, and their owners, etc. So it's extremely important for all of us as employers to keep systems in place, to deal with these issues, to obviously consult on a regular basis with qualified and knowledgeable immigration attorneys about your options for you, for your company, for your specific employees. If you don't have an attorney that's knowledgeable, certainly you're welcome to contact us at the Murthy Law Firm. We have an outstanding team here that can guide and help you. And uh, we look forward to continuing to take great care of you. And good luck with this year's H-1B cap season. I hope that all our cases get accepted, that we have no RFEs, uh, and we get 100% approval rating. As they say, God bless, right? Keep dreaming. But really looking forward to continuing to help you all and uh, have a wonderful rest of the afternoon. On behalf of myself, Sheila Murthy, Anna Stepanova, TJ, and the entire Murthy Law Firm family, we look forward to continuing to take great care of you all. Bye now. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. 
Learn about our firm, how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.